0: Welcome to An Abundant Future with Matt Powers. Today we've got some amazing things to cover. We're talking with students from my recent permaculture gardening course and Stephen Smith who's launched this Kickstarter to support his trip to Peru and I'm helping him out with his course and the planning for the trip and growing rare Peruvian corn seed. So we're gonna hear from Stephen about why Peru is important what they're going to do on this trip, and why he needs us all to participate. And I'm not just talking about supporting his campaign. I'm talking about why we all need to be adapting Peruvian corn again to North America. Because it was already done once. The Native Americans already did it once. So let's dive into Permaculture Gardening Reflections. This
1: class was more, in my mind, practical, as opposed to a lot of what I see in some of the permaculture design um, programs, where it's more about you know uh, being certified and going in and taking a look at uh, somebody's property or or system and you know giving them. Uh, suggestions or a design, how to lay that out and and be more be more useful and sustainable. This class gave us that, but in a way that was very tangible, in a way that was very useful in applying it to uh, our personal system uh, and how the more detailed aspects of uh, a system work and how how they how they feed each other and regenerate each other and and sustain each other as opposed to just here are the X y and z's of designing a system it's okay here are the ways of designing a system but how do we really use that for your place your time and and really feed the systems that you already have in place? how to observe those how to understand those and then how to nurture those uh to be more sustaining and to be more regenerative in themselves and to see more uses within what we already have and so it was it was very practical as opposed to some of the other stuff that i had seen
0: that is so great to hear because um so there's this trend that I got in on the crest of in teaching and what we're seeing happening with leading teachers is they've stopped doing the teacher based, you know, set of information communication based repetition based um, and really lower cognition based teaching style where I have a set of information I'm going to to, hose you down with it or shoot it at you and you or throw it at you and you're going to catch it or try to catch it or try to you know drink that 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 faucet that i or or hose that i I spray at you and it's this one-way communication and that way of teaching is not only old-fashioned but it doesn't work um because like as you said you can't personalize it there's no real connection relationship or relevancy built in the student and so for me as an english teacher what i did was i would start off being like well what do you already know where are you from i'm going to show you how you already know what you what i'm asking in this class you already are an expert in more than you know you know what i mean and so yes that's student based and when we come from that place the teacher is as much a student of the the experiences lives perspective of their students as as they are a teacher so coming from that place that's that's why i designed the course to be heavy on group coaching and interaction and actual practical application of the concepts um, of permaculture and so it is permaculture but it's pragmatic gardening Um, and it's also not, um, I really worked on making sure it wasn't, um, my way or the highway, um, unless the linchpins, like, yeah, we got to store the carbon back in, you know, into the soil. We got to bring organic matter back in the soil, stuff like that, you know, but everyone's got different situations. And I think the problem with most permaculture courses, books and everything is they're someone's experience and they say it's permaculture instead of it's like permaculture Oregon, Southern Oregon coastal, you know what I mean? Instead of saying where it's actually from, um, you know, and, and this course was so incredible because we embraced everyone's situation and everyone's different like biome and climate and we all learned a ton. Yes. So what, what do you think was, you know, your favorite part?
1: Um, I think my favorite part of the class was seeing the very thing that you just explained. I mean, when I took, when I took classes at Ohio State University, um, I hated going to class because it was a waste of time because I had already read the material and uh, All the teaching assistant did was reiterate what I had already read, and it it was a complete waste of time, and it was very clear that very few in the class read the material. Uh, Here, uh, and in other similar class scenarios that I've had that were actually very similar to this, um, you had the material, and the material was placed before you, but what really happened was that that material unfolded in each and every person's personal life situation. And so what may not apply in my zone that I saw applied in other zones, it was extremely educational because I saw very practical aspects to the concepts. And so that part of the, the online community of students, where we shared photographs and we we shared questions and we saw how others answered those questions as well as how you answered those questions. It made everything so um, personalized and everything so practical because you saw it in action in many scenarios. And I don't believe education can truly happen when all we have is a tunnel vision learning scenario. And so when you destroy that tunnel vision and you begin to see less linear, um, it's amazing what opens up to you. Uh, from the information that you're given, you know, uh, when I I can't remember the actual uh, style of note taking, uh, but it's not a linear style of note taking. It's a way in which, you know, you have this center concept and then you have all these other bubbles around your page and you connect these lines and within each one of those other little bubbles, there's little things that pop up. And so it looks very abstract on a piece of paper but yet basically what you've done is you've created a visual way of seeing all of this information on one page instead of these multiple pages of just linear lines of words. And I think that is what was created in this class um, where we saw all of these bits and pieces of information within this community of like-minded people that it truly drove in what was being taught as opposed to just being these linear lines of of letters and numbers uh and it, it brought forth and i hate using the word organic when i'm talking about uh learning and teaching because it seems like the current buzzword you know oh it's such an organic type of a class where it just moves and breathes but that's exactly what this was Uh, We had the linear, but then that turned into this organism within itself that just, it just just blew my mind when I saw how everything was applied in so many different life situations.
2: I imagined everyone had come into the class with a general idea of what they wanted to do with their property. And then just through the growth and, like you said, the involvement of everyone, you know, the entire class, it, it felt like it uplifted everyone. Everyone wanted to be there and contribute for the same cause and same reason of growing food and giving back to the earth and building it up. I mean, it was just, it was an amazing sight to see so many people come together and want to build a giant dream, essentially, I, I really enjoyed it. And the designs were just from any, anything from like a tenth of an acre to I think some people had like 20, 30 acres. It was amazing. This just, just a dream, the amount of land and to see the scope of designs for anything from just uh, hanging basket gardens to people had, you know, livestock and stuff. That's, that's amazing.
0: Wow, you know, I, I've never even considered that. I, you know, you're teaching me even now. Um, but that concept about how many acres we actually affected and you know, energized with regeneration, it's incredible. That's, that's really the word,
2: is energized with regeneration. You know, it like, really is. We're giving so much life back to the land. It's, it's uplifting. Yeah, it's the class of the It was a joy Uh, you know like I said before it was it was a true you know life-changing experience for me I I went into it just thinking I was going to learn some basic gardening kind of ideas and maybe companion planning and oh okay like I could probably change some things here or there but what it turned into was so much more than just hey plant some tomatoes and they'll grow like this it was how to regenerate soil and the, the true meaning of building soil and all that, you know, I just put in dirt and all that on the ground, it, you know, uh, it, I really enjoyed it. And it really opened doors for new avenues of, of things that, that to look up and research that I, I never thought I would even enjoy looking up.
0: That's exactly how I felt when I started learning about soil science. I was like, well, I'm not going to really need this. And then suddenly I found myself loving it. <laughs> you know, yeah, and we talked about that before, too.
2: It's, it's so fun to, like, to talk about that. You know, you don't think about growing soil or building soil ever. You know, everyone just wants to grow beautiful plants and see flowers, you know, which wish the real come from the soil itself.
0: Absolutely. So what was the most unexpected part of the course? Um. Honestly, a lot of it was unexpected just because I, I had never taken
2: a, a gardening course or a, a permaculture course or anything of the sort. So all of it was so new. The most enjoyable or new thing for me was uh, fungus, <laughs> honestly, as a, just learning about uh, growing and adapting funguses to my projects. It was just a concept that I never thought, oh, yeah, you know, mushrooms do help. You know, fungus really does work.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. I really owe a ton to Peter McCoy uh, for his book and for taking the time to, you know, go over things one on one with me, just like I went over one on one things with you guys. Wow, that was incredible. Those insights that we got from the course, the feedback I got really, really shows you what this course has to offer i have the course open right now for you to sign up there's only 48 hours left so join now i won't be doing it again until perhaps next spring maybe in the fall i don't really know where i will be at exactly in the fall um, with my schedule usually the fall is a very busy time for presenting and speaking so i don't know if i'll be running a course then per se but definitely next spring, so this is the last time for the season, so dive on in. And now we're going to hear from Stephen Smith. Let's talk about why. Why Peru? What's going on? Why do you feel drawn to go to Peru? It's, I guess
3: the exploration factor is always a part of it. But the I've always seen pictures of everything that's down there, and I've researched a lot of the maize and beans from down there for the past 10 years, since I was about 12. And I've the only pictures I had ever seen at that age was black and white. And after I finally got around on the Internet a little bit, I saw actual color photographs. And the deeper I dug, the more I realized that None of this was actually Photoshopped. This was 100% natural material that was down there. And after the more research I did and talking with my parents and some of the other um, experts that are still with us today, what few remain, it, it hit me that the local population in Peru, the Quechua, they are the remaining descendants of the Incan Empire after they, uh, they were conquered. And they maintain to a very large extent one hundred percent non GMO, all local heirloom and land raised, potatoes, lima beans, common beans, peppers, squash, peanuts, cowpeas, corn, pretty much majority of the staple crops that we rely on here, not only in the United States but globally that feed the worldwide population. And I was sitting in my room yesterday looking at some of the posters I have in here of the photographs of some of the maize land races, And seeing the word corn, it really hit me at that point that it doesn't mean what it used to. And it's bringing the original meaning of brightly colored, beautiful, 100% edible corn, lima beans, peanuts, squash, peppers, quinoa, everything that... Or staples or could be staples once we get them out there to people and let people understand that we have some truly amazing stuff down there because Peru is one of the last remaining strongholds of diversity in the world they have around four to five hundred different types of maize corn alone and lima beans number in the thousands common beans number in the thousands and a wild potato species has turned into five to ten thousand different types and you have neon red neon blue neon purple striped speckled pine cone shaped lumpy it's it's like seeing some of the material that comes from down there it's like why are we not utilizing this material even though it does have day length issues but we can adapt it because that material is some of the it has some of the strongest genetic diversity that still exists. I usually refer to Peru as the Mexico of South America because it's it was the original foundation block for corn of South America. Flower corn evolved in Peru because Mexico never had any of it until it spread up from Peru. into Central America, then it made its way up to Mexico and into into North America here. then, of course, All around the world but the the sheer biodiversity that is in Peru alone is is beyond words quite honestly and it's it's having material that is resistant to pests resistant to disease they can grow in frosty areas they can grow in extremely dry areas that and some of the corn is the largest in the world that is down there with seed the size of half dollar coins and all of this biodiversity is being maintained by the local population with traditional knowledge and still pretty traditional farming methods. Because a lot of the modern agriculture that we know today, they don't practice down there. They still plant with some of the old Incan uh, instruments down there. And it's, it's trying to show, showcase not only the seed and their story, but their local people. Because it is the local people that has kept them going for so long.
0: Absolutely. It's the culture that we need to, that, that, that cultural habit of plant breeding and seed saving that we need to bring to the world again. So what, what are your goals for this trip? Because I mean, I think everyone who heard that understands the value there. I, I don't think we need to, <laughs> you know, I mean, we all <laughs> understand how valuable it is, especially right now in this huge extinction of biodiversity that is occurring all, you know, all over the world. So what are the objectives for, for your trip down to Peru?
3: We, we are looking at traveling to one of the most important and biggest markets that is down there, the San Pedro market that is in the central plaza of Cusco. And this is the market that attracts thousands of people a year, if not sometimes millions. And we're gonna we're gonna visit the markets to, to get photographs and interviews of the folks selling the seed and the actual product there. So we'd be getting pepper seed as well as seeing what the actual pepper would look like, getting the story that it comes from it, as well as getting its uses and everything. But we will also be, to, uh, in a way, touring the countryside in order to find some of the smaller villages that house some of the more sacred seed, so to speak, that you wouldn't necessarily find out on the markets. Because on the markets, you can find pretty much everything that is commonly grown. The more rare and more stunning material you find with the local families, because it's it's what they've, they've bred personally themselves and kept going as well, because it, it's what they feed their family with. So we would be going to visit these local families, staying some nights with these these folks, and getting a deeper conversation going of what it truly means to them to be able to grow these seed, to let them know if they don't, what is actually going on in the world with, like, maize and potatoes and everything and how the genetic modification is what's really dominating everything right now. And trying to capture as much of the local tradition, traditional knowledge, culture, as well as cuisine of what these corns, these beans, these peppers, potatoes, everything is used for. So we can show people that they are indeed life sustaining. And while they do pose certain climactic issues of adaptation, it's not impossible, as you as you and I both have shown. And right. it can be done. But right. we want to also be able we also want to be able to bring back seed of some of these amazing varieties. Of corn, peppers, squash, beans, peanuts, amaranth, podium pretty much anything that we can we can lay hands on and get these brought back and offer seed samples to folks so they can do their own trial growing of these, see how they behave, and also at the same time have my guidance and yours as well as any other folks uh, with online videos and the online course that we're putting together to teach people how to grow these length varieties and get them to produce. And because once you, once you overcome the first year of adaptation, you're pretty much set. You have everything, you already have a good basis of everything that you need once you get one year adaptation. And from there, it's just, pretty much reselecting and keep growing it year after year. I think but a we lot get of it... The, we want to document... I,
0: th- I think a lot of it is um, debunking a lot of the myths. A lot of people feel like you can't transplant corn. Not true. A lot of people like feel like you can't grow a corn in a greenhouse over winter. Not true. Um, a lot of people think that you need to grow corn in, in the full sun always. Not true. Um, and so because we're doing things that everyone was told don't do that, we're able to get new reactions out of these plants. And I think that that's just the thing is it's almost everyone could have done what we did if they had read what we read and thought about it a little bit. But, <laughs> but I think everyone stops at that gate and they're like, oh, they said not to. okay. You know what I mean? And they don't open that gate and walk through and try it and see why. And and that's what you know we've been tinkering with. Mm, exactly, yeah.
3: A lot of people, when they see the words daily and sensitive, it instantly clicks, this is very difficult, I shouldn't even bother with it. And they do pose very difficult issues at times to grow and reproduce. But it has to be understood that Where we will be at is pretty much the equator. So their growing season is nearly 360, 365 days a year. And these corn and beans and everything, they've been grown here for thousands of years. So they're genetically and physiologically adapted to wherever they're from.
0: But this has happened before, right? This has happened already. I mean, the corn left the photoperiodic place and it was an equatorial plant and it traveled up all the way into Canada. And the, the Native Americans already did the work once, proving that it's possible.
3: Because mm-hmm. when Tiacente, uh, the ancestor where all corn comes from, in its native river valley down in the Boston River of Mexico, it's actually daily sensitive there because it, it shifted the photo period to adapt to the local rainfall that would happen in the opposite times of year than here. And the original maize... The first early maize that were forms of Nautil and Chapalote, they were partially daily sensitive. And it spread into the southwestern United States, where it had to be adapted to day neutral photo period. And then it spread to the other Native American tribes and all the way up to Canada. And they adapted it so it doesn't have the photo period issue that the equator material does. But so, as you've proven with your Piscarunto growing, it's, it's possible to grow the South American material here. It's not easy easy, but it's not impossible as we were told either.
0: Right. And I, I combined a few different things. I didn't keep my Piscarunto kind of perfectly pure. It, it's, got, it's got some chispy in it too. And that's, that's because I hedged my bets because I was like, you know, if I've got all the genes that are mixing, it'll have more choice. Uh, more options to adapt with. And so that's why I did that. Um, And I don't know how much of a factor that was, um, but I did it all. I didn't even hand pollinate. That's the crazy thing. I did nothing but plant the seeds and harvest.
3: And you're you're actually practicing what is practiced down there in Peru. A lot of the locals, they let their varieties cross in between each other. And when they get something they like, they're select for whatever that is. And it'll it'll produce something brand new. And that's another thing that we want to do with this documentary and our trip down there is show people that a lot of the stuff is really old. A lot of it predates the Incan Empire, yes. But there's new stuff popping up down there all the time that's never been documented that no one even really knows exists. Hi. And we want to show people that, we want to show people that there is this brand new stuff down there and that It's not hard to create something of your own, to create your own land race, because these locals have been doing it for thousands of years. That's how a lot of this actually came to be. The giant corn of Cuzco that is native down there, it was never that large. It was selected by the Incan Empire to be that large, to feed it. But all of this brand new stuff that is not documented, it, it quite well has the possibility to hold key factors of disease tolerance, resistance, climate adaptation that what we do know exists may not actually hold and a lot of the variability that we find in this stuff down there is it's not even documented in what material was written back in the 50s and 60s.
0: Well, that's the thing is if we were doing that in every local biome every region would have its own series of land races. And then we would have a stable biodiversity because every local region would have its own unique biodiversity. That's what needs to happen.
3: Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. And if we could could ever track down, say, Chorpi from all, all departments of Peru or Piscarunto from all departments of Peru, we could make what is called a composite. And mix all of those genetics together and get a really fascinating and really adaptable and diverse composite, of all the genetics that could be found in Piscarinto. Because wow. while the, the main classification is Piscarinto, when you go to Ayacucho, to Cuzco, to Juan Cavalca, you'll find different versions of it that have been selected for more stripes. Took to like a cow, maybe a zebra, or to have it look like a bird egg. And it it all varies across the entire country down there because uh, various locals have a certain flavor that they want to capture and a certain look to it. And we could compositely create various versions of everything down there. And the, the adaptability option to this stuff is actually, what most people don't realize is it may be daily insensitive, and corn does have about a thousand different genetics that must be readapted to a new area it's planted. But the corn plant, as soon as it pops up out of the ground and even really beforehand, it knows it has to readapt and it immediately begins the process. It's just a matter of us kind of stepping in with our techniques that we found that work and show people that they can indeed produce this stuff here in the United States, because that's what it's gonna take to keep a lot of it going because the, the, we would be in the Sacred Valley of Peru, which is prime corn and bean country. And <laughs> and the altitude is about between seven to 10,000 feet in elevation, so it's way higher than what we are uh, in most places here in the States, unless you're in the mountains. And any of the lowland varieties of corn and lima beans and everything that is really below... 2,000 meters or so, about 2,000 or 3,000 feet in elevation, anything below that is actually considered genetically eroded and not even viable anymore because it's been contaminated with so much GMO um, corn production. So it's going to really be up to what is in the gene banks around the world for lowland maize. The highland maize that we're looking for, the giant Cuzco, the speckled Piscarunto and everything, it's all it's still pure because GMO corn will not grow at high elevations, and the locals have kept it out because they they know their their local varieties were produced. So it's what it's what's kept them going for thousands of years.
0: You know, I'm going back to California and I'm going to plant this April all that corn. Am I going to plant? I'm not going to go back to Missouri to harvest. Uh, you know, and all that. So I'm going to plant it all on my system in California, and. I mean, I got, you know, a, a big bag of it this year. I'm probably going to be able to get so much more next year. I'm so excited. And it, uh, it only took me, you know, two, two good growing seasons, and it shrank an entire 30 days uh, between the, the, those two seasons in the, in, the, in the time it took to mature.
3: Yeah, because most, most people, when they, they ask me what's the maturity of stuff like that, I always tell them between 200 and 300 days, and that's just a tassel and silk alone. That's not even actual maturity. But like I, like I said at the beginning, you have accomplished what I have written in the book right now, the most difficult task of adapting it for the first year, because when you have that first year of genetic adaptation beginning, it'll keep going and going and going. And once you keep growing it out over the next couple of years, you're probably have it to the early, the natural early maturity that it bears in, in actual Peru in the highlands where it's grown. Cause it's, it's weird and kind of freaky to think that down there it's like a 80, 70, 80 day corn. But when you bring it here, it jumps up to like 200, 300 days.
0: What? But once you, that's crazy.
3: Yeah. And as you saw in a lot of the pictures that I post of some of the stuff I have, a lot of these, when you bring them up from their low oxygen and carbon dioxide um, high elevations into the United States, they reach heights of like 20, 30 feet tall. And in their native regions, they're only about four or five feet. So it's, the, it's, the, it's not only the climate shift, but it's that they have more, they have richer soil because the, where they're from, it's all rocky and rather poor, and so they have better soil. They have more oxygen, more sunlight, and more longer days to produce foliage in order to feed their production of these large ears and kernels. Wow! But hopefully, hopefully, in a couple, a couple more seasons, you'll actually have it pretty much the way it is in Peru.
0: Instead incredible. of these really long... Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I, I foresee the future, you know, culinarily in our gardens, on our plates, is going to be so much more colorful than we grew up understanding food to be. I mean, growing up, food was, you know, brown, uh, yellow, and white, and, and green sometimes, you know? And now food is becoming, you know... Mm, there's yellow back in the, then, too, but there was more reds and purples pinks and oranges and you know and blues and so we're, we're into this into this race where we're bringing biodiversity back uh, and I think that you're a key player in this Steven and that's why um, I'm always willing to help you and I, that's why I love doing videos with you you know so much because you're so passionate about that um, and that's what really allows you to hold all that information a lot of people probably wonder how you know, experts like you hold on to so much information, but it, it, it's because you care. Uh, your passion is what actually holds the information. So I hope that people get passionate too about seed saving, about crazy colors, about beautiful colors, and starts really bringing b- the diversity back that we need. Um, we're going we're gonna to really need a team of people. I can't, I, I'm, doing, I'm holding down one variety really right now, um, that I've adapted, uh, with some mix of another in there, but we need hundreds of people adapting them. Um, so my listeners, uh, Steven and I, and, and Baker Creek, Joe Simcox, uh, there's a lot of people out there trying to bring diversity back. And I hope that you partner with us in whatever way you can, whether you can support our Kickstarter, um, Steven has some amazing perks. He has uh, a corn course. He's going he's doing he's eventually gonna have a bean course, too He has a corn book that he, uh, he we mentioned earlier and It's all on there. He's gonna have seed samplers. He's actually having a seed sale right now On seeds of independence preservation. Do you want to give a website for that Steven?
3: Yes, I actually have it up right now. I've been editing it in between us chatting so but we have some of the um exquisitely beautiful lima beans that are not all edible so i will advise that because what a lot of people don't realize is a lot of the lima beans that are grown in south america including peru they are used for jewelry so you can have necklaces bracelets they are doing pottery um they can be used as buttons on jackets so they're not all edible they actually contain enough cyanide to kill you in 10 minutes but they they're still beautiful and they have such a genetic diversity inside of a single seed and a lot of these are resistant to pretty much all bean rust and viruses and everything that you could possibly want but our seed store website is seeds of independence without the e so it'll be seeds of i n d e p e n d e n c period w i x s i t e dot com slash seed store all right and we are we're we're selling out really quickly so if anyone wants anything i recommend shooting me a facebook message if we're friends on facebook if not send me a request and, or email us uh, the email is on the website and all the information on this material is under the exclusives tab and as well as the beans tab so but we have we have squash we have cucumbers we have melons we have lima beans common beans and corn and hopefully once the trip to Peru is and once we're back and we get seed brought back in here we'll be able to offer a whole bunch more samplers because the the whole goal of the early seed selling here is to have the profits go toward my trip down there to Peru for us, as well as to get some of these beautiful beans and corn out there. So in the coming weeks, when I get these videos, uh, start beginning the videos for the online course, and Sophie as well on adapting these seed, that people can begin learning the process because it's not actually difficult to do. The methods that You have, you've made, you've created Matt, with your growing of the Piscarunto and some of the others that you and I have talked about, they're actually really simple. And it, a lot of people, like you said, think you need a greenhouse. Actually, not really. Really, the most material you would need is maybe a pot and some potting mix and a five-gallon bucket or a trash can. And because that's, that's one of the methods that I will be going over. So it's, it's not impossible and it's not as difficult as people, people may fear it is. And that's what we, do, we don't want anyone scared of these beautiful seed because they're all, they're going to be our lives. They're already the blood of the cultures where they're native to, and the being raised around this stuff, it it really sinks in after you've seen one of the main corns that's been in your family for uh, 120 years as a foundation block for genetic modification. And it's we can't really undo the extinction that we've we've seen and that's going on, but we can slow it down and especially we can stop it. And part of that is getting the seed out there, getting more people involved, because once all of you hopefully see some of these seed, you'll understand why we're pushing to preserve this diversity, because you're not really going to walk into a, into Walmart or another grocery store here in, in the United States or other parts of the world, really, and find a neon purple lima bean. (laughs) <laughs> or a zebra striped blimba bean.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. Uh, this is th- it's always a thrill to hear uh, all about all the variety and all the possibilities that we have ahead of us, um, just waiting around the, around the bend. And Peru is just one of the places that I'm sure that you will be traveling. I'm sure that Mexico is in your future, and many of the remaining strongholds um, that you'll be traveling and documenting and sharing seed from those locations
3: definitely mexico guatemala bolivia they're they're in the looks right now to be to be visiting and we're also possibly looking at visiting some of the more northern uh, iroquois people to get some of their culture and everything but We're kind of wanting to look at a series here to try to get not only the seed out there, but get the documentaries out there as well. But it's going to take more people involved into this stuff and a lot more push, as I say, to get to get a lot of this stuff out there. But it's happening and it's possible. And hopefully once we get this documentary done and people see this stuff down there, they'll be as obsessed with it as pretty much as I am. So,
0: (laughs) yeah, I'm sure they will be. All right, Stephen, well, have a good night, and thank you for stopping by. I hope this Kickstarter rockets through, and uh, we we see you go down there and return with uh, a bounty of amazing seed.
3: Same, same. Well, it's always a pleasure, Matt, and thank you very much for everything.
0: All right. Have a good night.
3: You too. Bye.
0: All right. Bye. listen to Stephen Smith talk every time he speaks about diversity or corn you really learn a lot and you you can feel his passion. I really appreciate him. He's a young man and he's got a lot going on and we are going to be able to see what he accomplishes um, in his lifetime. It's going to be really interesting to witness. Thank you so much for tuning in to An Abundant Future with Matt Powers. I really appreciate the support, the positivity, and the hope that you exude and that you participate in. Please let's keep spreading it. Let us spread hope, let us spread the truth that we can regenerate ourselves and our ecosystems. So let's go out there this week and show them that it's possible. Have a great week.